0: Welcome to the Atlantic Council events podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, distinguished speakers address the threat from digital disinformation campaigns. The panel was part of the Atlantic Council's first transatlantic forum on strategic communications and digital disinformation. The conference took place on September 26, 2017.
1: Uh, good morning, everyone. My, Fred, my, my name is Fred Kemp. I'm President CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, you can see by the crowd here uh, the level of interest and the level of importance of our discussion today. I'm delighted to welcome you this morning to the Atlantic Council and to the first transatlantic forum on strategic communications, STRATCOM. You'll hear that a lot today the first one that's been held here in the United States. We're live streaming today's events, so a warm welcome to all those joining us also remotely. We encourage everyone to be part of the discussion by using the hashtag, hashtag StratComDC, StratComDC. Let me first thank our partners uh, in this endeavor, NATO, the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, the Baltic American Freedom Foundation, and the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, I'll also take this opportunity to welcome Senator Ron Johnson uh, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse who have generously taken t- the time to join us today and will be delivering keynote remarks in a few minutes. In the audience today we are joined by our uh, European members, Department of State, the media and many distinguished guests including, I don't know if President Elvis is here yet, uh, but he will be, President Tom Ilves, former President of Estonia, Andrea Thompson, National Security Advisor for Vice President Mike Pence and Deputy Assistant for uh, President Donald Trump, Niels Farts, uh, De- Director General of the Swedish Civil Conta- Contingencies Agency, Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs for the Czech Republic, Jakub Dura, and Congressman Joaquin Castro who represents Texas 20th Congressional District who will be joining later in the program. Today's proceedings are part of the Atlantic Council's effort to respond to disinformation while building resilience in our democracies to foreign influence. As part of this effort, we have worked to build a powerful transatlantic community to mobilize against attempts to undermine democratic values through disinformation campaigns. Uh, There are many threats we uh, 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 confront on the global stage today. Uh, but I'm not sure any is as insidious, as opaque, and as hard to take on as this one is. And we are determined to do this with a broad network uh, of uh, uh, across the world. We recognize that in the fight for transatlantic values, we must adopt a whole-of-society approach. Governments, private sector, civil society all have a key role to play. We've engaged U.S. and European policymakers, tech companies, civil society, media, and a growing community of citizen journalists and a range of experts. I'm delighted to see that we have representatives from all of Europe's STRATCOM teams with us today. Our research on this front has made significant impact. On September 1st, we published the report, Agent of Influence Should Russia's RT Register as a Foreign Agent? chaired by Congressman David Cicilline. Less than two weeks later, on September 12th, the Department of Justice announced its investigation into RT's registration under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Long before it was a hot topic, we documented the extent of Russian political influence in our democracies. In November 2016, we published the Kremlin's Trojan horses, which examined uh, Russian political networks in France, Germany and the UK. And so look for uh, Kremlin's Trojan Horses 2.0 later this fall. Alina Polyakova has been a real pioneer in this field. I also want to salute John Herbst, the head of the center, Geisha Gonzalez, and the entire Eurasia Center for its uh, really uh, groundbreaking work in this world. Furthermore, through our growing network of digital Sherlock's, our digital forensic research lab continually tracks disinformation campaigns 24-7. Uh, fake news stories, covert military development, subversive attempts against democracy, while teaching public skills to identify and expose attempts to pollute the information space. Uh, this lab is really only a little more than a year old, but it's already got a lot of traction and success. This past weekend, uh, the unit was in um, deployed in Berlin uh, with a 24-hour digital research unit to monitor the German election. Together with our friends at Axel Springer's built newspaper, they were able to identify Russian bot activity and false propaganda, false, uh, false, and fake news, aimed at boosting last-minute support for the far-right AfD through the spread of hate. Uh, they did their work in German and English, and we, in, in general, consider the best, uh, ba- the best way to battle disinformation is put out true information and unveil the fake information. So that's what we tried to do there. Uh, Today, I'm delighted to announce the launch of uh, two thought-provoking reports, which I highly recommend you pick up if you haven't haven't already. The first, called the MADCOM Future, examines how artificial intelligence will enhance computational propaganda and threaten democracy, and highlights what can be done against this threat. The second, uh, Digital Disinformation, a Primer, is a short and snappy guide for policymakers who are concerned about the security of the digital environment. In short, the Atlantic Council is determined to be on the forefront of this crucially important effort to confront disinformation, fake news, and alternative facts with as broad and as connected a network as we can because we're all in this together. Today's conference is an important step in continuing our efforts uh, to convene key stakeholders, researchers, government officials, and civil society actors from both sides of the Atlantic to share best practices, coordinate research, and engage with the policy community in order to address digital disinformation and strengthen transatlantic cooperation. So now, to kick us off today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse to cl- deliver keynote addresses. Uh, Senator Johnson of Wisconsin has been leading on those these issues, not only as chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, but also as, the, as chairman of the Subcommittee on Europe and regional security cooperation within the Committee on Foreign Relations. In the months following the Russian invasion of Crimea, he raised important questions about, quote, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the propaganda that threatens Europe. In fact, Senator, I remember, uh, I remember you asking both Peter Pomerantsov, who's with us today, and our own director of Digital Forensic Research Lab, Max Juperski, how effective our measures were to deal with Russian information operations, in a way, urging us to be more effective than we were at that time uh, in what we could do with this space, and you were prescient right from the beginning of these, about these challenges. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who will follow Senator Johnson, has been one of the forces on the Hill helping to answer those questions. As you said, Senator, and I quote, the threat is real, and if we do not take action, the problem will only get worse, uh, end quote. That's especially when it comes to our elections and the integrity of the democratic process. So I thank you both for being here and hope that with today's discussion, we can help foster further ideas and proactive measures uh, to take on in this area. So thank you for your leadership in these areas, uh, Senators. And Senator Johnson, the floor is yours.
2: Well, thank you, Fred, and good morning. Um, So this conference is about strategic communications. I, I would use a slightly different word, something that's more universal. Uh, throughout the world, and it's called relationships. Like Secretary Tillerson, who I just left uh, having breakfast with, I come from the business world. And businesses run on relationships. And I would argue effective foreign policy, relationships between nations and states, is all based on relationships. They're relationships that we have to work and foster to deepen uh, every day as as the times go by, particularly in such perilous times. Uh, Again, my own background is in uh, plastics manufacturing. Uh, we sold all over the world, and we sold all over the world based on deepening relationships. Uh, I'm not of this world. I mean, when you come from the private sector, and I think you're seeing this with uh, President Trump, you're probably seeing this with, with uh, Secretary Tillerson, when you come through the private sector, government is an alternate universe. I often tell people to come before our, our committee's confirmation when I meet with in my Senate office, the laws of physics as you've learned them in the private sector don't apply to the political realm. It's just different. And so it takes a little bit of time from some in the business world to get a little used to different laws of physics. But we're, what remains constant is the imperative of building strong relationships. Now, I didn't start uh, when, I, when I first came to Congress in 2011. I was not on foreign relations. I, I started, uh, got involved in that committee in my second Congress in 2013. Uh, I became the ranking member of the European Subcommittee. It was very interesting. Uh, Chris Murphy was the, the chairman at that point in time. And we would meet with uh, delegation after delegation of uh, European representatives. And basically the entire conversation the first two years, at first Congress, was all about Edward Snowden and, you know, tapping Angela Merkel's phone. And again, the legitimate concerns. But then Charlie Hebdo happened. I haven't heard a word about Edward Snowden or what uh, American security services were trying to do to keep not only America but the world's safe. What I'm hearing now is, where is America? What do we need to do to deepen our relationship? Uh, If you would have told me, I I just ran tough re-election, got re-elected, I I often say that now I've got a six-year sentence, no time time off for good behavior. Um, If you would have told me, with all the domestic issues we have to deal with, that I would have been traveling over to Europe four times this year, I would have said, just don't have enough time. But the reason so many of us make that trip uh, is not for the 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 glamour of the travel. It's because we realize how important it is. With some of the rhetoric that's quite honestly coming out of this president, our administration, we have to reinforce the fact that we do have three branches of government. And certainly within Congress, uh, we rep- we recognize, and so does the administration, how vital and important our relationship is with Europe, how important NATO is. And so a number of us have traveled over to Europe, come to conferences like this to primarily make that point. We understand. We are the Western democracies. We are the civilized world. We face an evolving, metastasizing, growing threat. And the only way we can really address that long term and effectively is if we band together and if we cooperate and if we deepen those relationships. Uh, one of my messages is I've gone over to Europe, because I know uh, President Trump went over there and, and uh, did a pretty effective job pointing out how important it is that NATO step up the plate and honor their commitment for 2% funding. Understand, President Trump isn't just speaking for himself. This is very important for our European partners to understand this. We stand with you. If you want an example, by the way, that is pretty extraordinary is the United States Congress. A number of years ago, when we saw Russian aggression against Crimea and eastern Ukraine, the United States Congress, because of many congressional delegations on bipartisan bases going over to Ukraine, passed unanimously an authorization for $300 million of lethal defensive weaponry in support of Ukraine. Now, I, I don't know if, how many of you in this room think or understand how extraordinary that unanimous support was, but whether you agree or disagree with it, what you need to do is take that as a signal of Congress's long-term commitment and recognize, recognition of how important our NATO and European relationship is. Again, that, that was quite extraordinary, but having said that, when President Trump is talking about how important it is for Europe to step up the plate and of that 2% commitment, he's speaking for the American public. I happen to think America's been a phenomenal force for good in the world. We're not perfect, but what we do in our own national defense interest has spillover benefits around the world. We are a compassionate people. We want peace and prosperity and safety and security for everybody in the world. And so the American taxpayer has long supported efforts way outsized in terms of our population to provide peace and security throughout the world. And so the American public also takes a look at a relatively affluent Europe, particularly Western Europe. And when we have historically spent 4, 5, 6 percent of our GDP on, on defense, we're not spending even close to that now. We need to spend more. And the American taxpayer takes a look at, well, Europe, they're not even spending their commitment to, they made to, to, to NATO. The American taxpayer doesn't like that. And the only reason I'm I'm not trying to beat up on you here, I'm just trying to point out the fact how crucial it is that the American taxpayer understands that NATO will also rise to the times, rise to the challenge, to the threat that Russian aggression poses to our democracies, to our freedom, and just come up to that 2% level. If you want America's support to remain as steady and steadfast and solid as it's been in the, future, in the past, in the future, you have to show that same level of commitment to your own national defense. So again, President Trump isn't just speaking for himself, he literally is speaking for the American public. Now, one of the big news stories in America is, is Russian interference in our elections. More and more information is coming out. It was a pervasive and undermining effort. But it didn't come as a surprise to me, as as the chairman of the European subcommittee, we've held hearings on this. We've seen the destabilizing nature, the destabilizing efforts of Russia throughout, particularly Eastern Europe. I mean, the trial in Montenegro should prove to anyone that's willing to, to listen that that wasn't just disinformation propaganda, that was an act of war perpetrated on now a NATO ally. This is serious business. Unfortunately, chaos is cheap. We were talking about that in the, in the green room. Chaos is cheap. It doesn't take a whole lot to destabilize, but it takes resources. It takes commitment. It takes cooperation. It takes relationships to provide stability and peace and the opportunity we all want for our fellow citizens. That means working together. And it also means coming up with a coordinated effort to counter Russia today. To counter the destabilization. Well, one thing I found out, and I, you know, this was a misperception I had, is I, I always talked about Russian propaganda. It's really not, I don't think Russia's really trying to provide propaganda to get people to agree with it. Because I think they realize, you know, people are smarter than that. They're not going to look at Russia and go, oh, here's a successful economic model. What their propaganda is all about is really disinformation, trying to get the people of Europe to believe that you can't believe anybody. You can certainly can't believe Russia, but you can't believe the leaders in the West, either. It undermines democracies. It's incredibly effective. And we need a far more coordinated effort to counteract that, if we're going to provide the peace and stability that we so desire for our own peoples. Now, a quick shout out to the Atlantic Council. You know, Fred, thank you for what you do. These think tanks are crucial. We were talking about, again, that also in the, in the green room. You know, as members of Congress, we're, we're in four different primary committees, subcommittees underneath that. We're, we're torn between all these different issues. Organizations like the Atlantic Council can do deep dives. They can provide members of Congress and our staff the information we need to enact good policy, good resolutions to push back, to coordinate our action, to actually get results. The you know, latest example in terms of my own committee was Damon Wilson, came and briefed me on the Balkans. We, ha- we held a hearing. And then in my last trip over to Europe when I asked the State Department you know where should I go to make the point to demonstrate to people in Europe that we value the relationship it was because of some of the input from people like the Atlantic Council and Damon Wilson said well you better go to Serbia, you better go to Kosovo and that would be my last point that I want to make to all of you. I believe Eastern, Southeastern Europe as they kind of like to be called now I guess as opposed to the Balkans. I believe Southeastern Europe is at a hinge point. I think it is crucial that Western Europe, that the Western democracies make sure that we pay attention. That we convey to the Balkans, to Southeastern Europe, how crucial and important they are to us, to peace and stability. If we don't do that, they start looking east. When their entire future, the entire economic future is to the west. I was with President Vucic. I was with the President of Kosovo. These are individuals that would like to improve their relationships take risk for peace. But they need our help and our support from America, from Europe, from the EU, from NATO. So let's not get so involved in our own domestic situations that we forget how important the relationships are, how important our engagement is with Eastern Europe, with Southeastern Europe, that is being undermined on a daily basis, an hourly basis, that is being, having attempts to destabilize Eastern and Southeastern Europe, by the Russians. Only the West can provide the stability. Their future lies with us. We need to recognize that and we gotta do, We have to do everything we can to make sure that we provide that stability, that we have an open-arm policy, or else we will blow an opportunity. So again, I'll close my r- remarks again by just thanking the Atlantic Council for putting on a forum like this, where people can get together, talk, discuss, have dialogue, Develop the kind of relationships that in a crisis are absolutely crucial.
3: Thank you Good morning everyone. It is uh, wonderful to be with you and uh, I join Senator Johnson in my appreciation of the Atlantic Council's efforts uh, In this area and the role that you play in helping guide good policy here in Washington the uh, advent of the Gerasimov Doctrine out of Russia has added a new method and a new field of conflict to international warfare. Uh, In this case, disinformation warfare. The two primary tools that we see in play are uh, weaponized fake news and politicized corruption i.e. not corruption just for the sake of entering into a corrupt business deal and making corrupt money, but corruption for the sake of creating a political effect uh, in the place where you've orchestrated the corruption. This has been a topic that we've paid a fair amount of attention to in Congress. Um, we've had three hearings that I have participated in. One was the hearing in our Judiciary Subcommittee on the Russian toolbox Of election interference and I want to thank uh, my chairman Lindsey Graham for his keen efforts to make sure that hearing took place and did very well and I want to thank my friend President Ilves for being a staggeringly good witness at that hearing and you will hear also from him today so I welcome President Ilves here. The Helsinki Commission held a terrific hearing on the scourge of Russian Disinformation, and I want to thank uh, Senator Roger Wicker for organizing that. He and Ben Cardin uh, put that together. And CSIS had a very good hearing on through the Schieffer lectures uh, on this uh, same issue. Um, we've had hearings at home as well. Alina Polyakova came to Newport, Rhode Island, to a university uh, proceeding on this subject there. So there has been considerable attention to it. And the reason that I mention that is that the reports all point very much in the same direction. The Atlantic Council's Kremlin Trojan Horses report is a fabulous piece of work and reads like a Tom Clancy novel. Um, The CSIS Kremlin Playbook is an equally important and readable piece of work. And there's a very strong consensus that there are uh, things that America needs to do in order to defend our elections against proven strategies deployed over and over again throughout the former Soviet Union and throughout uh, the European Union as a part of the Gerasimov Doctrine. As I said, they tend to revolve around weaponized dark news and politicized corruption. And the vehicle, the condition that enables weaponized fake news, and politicized corruption is opacity. When Fred was giving his initial remarks, he said that this was insidious, opaque, and hard to take on. Well, the opacity of it is a particular problem. Transparency and sunlight are the enemies of Russian election interference, and there is a powerful and solid consensus around that. And if you take that point one step further, and you look at our country, and you look at what our vulnerabilities are, and every single expert on this topic has told us, this ain't over, folks. They did it before, they will do it again. Russia actually doesn't even mind being caught. That's part of the game. But to be able to identify where their outlets are, and to be able to trace them back, diminishes that power. So transparency is vital. And over and over again, the experts have pointed to the same vectors that leave us vulnerable to this continued Russian interference in our elections. And two of them are very clear. One is the ability of outside forces to drive money into elections without showing the hand of who's behind the money. We got a name for that in this country. It's called dark money, political dark money. And over and over again, the reports point out that Political dark money needs to have transparency if you're gonna keep the hands of foreign influence out of our elections. The second is shell corporations. The European world is moving toward incorporation transparency to defend, among other things, against this problem. It's also a defense against corruption and organized crime and a whole bunch of other evils in the world, but it is also a defense against this. So I come at this issue from a point of view of a record that has been established in the Senate, that political dark money and opaque shell corporations are an open invitation to the Russians to continue their election interference. They are live vulnerabilities, and there are vulnerabilities that we need to do something about, not only because they are an avenue for direct corruption into and influence into our elections, but also because they allow the corruption of business interests and other entities, and you take a bank shot off of those and play off of their uh, political influence. Both of those are common Russian practices. So that faces the United States of America with a very important problem and something of a predicament. Because those two vehicles, dark money and shell corporations, are not just vehicles for foreign political influence. They are also vehicles for domestic political influence. And we are now in the throes of having to face up to the fact that if we are going to defend ourselves from foreign political influence by putting transparency and daylight into political spending and into shell corporations so you can find out who is behind them, proper incorporation transparency, you are going to disable political means that powerful special interests use to enforce their own political goals in America. People are going to have to look at enormously powerful special interests and say, we know you've used this for a long time now. To a very significant degree, you may depend on dark money and shell corporations to hide your hand. But in the interest of our national security, in this new Gerasimov Doctrine era, we have to tell you that day is over and you're going to have to play in the American political system like an ordinary player. I don't know if we are up to that. This is a test of whether America has gone past a tipping point of special interest influence, that it can no longer defend itself against these vectors of influence because it can't deny those vectors of influence to those big special interests. Let me close with a case study in all of this. I was elected to the Senate in 2006. I was sworn in in 2007. For all of 2007, all of 2008, all of 2009, climate change was a bipartisan issue. We had bipartisan bills, bipartisan hearings, Republicans sponsoring legislation, even a Republican national presidential candidate who ran on a very good climate change platform. That stopped dead in January of 2010 when the Citizens United decision was rendered by the Supreme Court. That decision allowed unlimited money to flow into our elections, which empowers who? People who have A, unlimited money, and B, a really big interest in elections. So that small subset of our polity got powered up enormously, and that is exactly where the fossil fuel industry is. It's at the epicenter of that. And it instantly found its way through dark money channels because it's not as much fun to be outed as this being your advertisement. It's much better to run your money through Donors Trust or through a shell corporation and have it emerge through Americans for Puppies and Prosperity or some front group shell corporation. And the money, is just the tip of the iceberg because if you can do that, particularly if it's enabled further by being dark money, that enables a whole other set of threats and promises that are the iceberg under the water. So it has become an enormously powerful force and it has crippled America's ability to deal with what is an obvious and plain issue. So that's a case study right now of how big special interests have taken advantage of this same opacity that we need to be rid of to protect against the Garasimov Doctrine. That is the battle we face in many respects is the battle for the soul and integrity of our country and I'm sorry to tell you that right now I can't tell you how it's going to come out. But the Atlantic Council's role in this is very important. I appreciate that you are having this discussion and uh, I'm all on the side of incorporation transparency and disclosure
1: of political funding. Thanks very much. Just, uh, to wrap up in 30 seconds, these two great keynotes. Uh, Senator Johnson talking about the pervasive and undermining effort of, uh, um, intervention in, uh, domestic elections from the Russian side. This is serious business. And it's not that the, the, there's an effort to believe, uh, Moscow, but really can't believe anyone. And then I want to salute Senator Whitehouse for his very important statement, certainly bringing to light again the Gorosimov Doctrine. But two points, weaponized fake news, and then one I think me, we all should take a harder look at, and particularly at the Atlantic Council of Politicized Corruption, and then finally this wonderful quote that will lead us into the rest of our day, which is, Transparen- transparency and sunlight are the enemies of Russian political infer- interference, so let's have more transparency and sunlight. Thank- so thank you to Senator Whitehouse, Senator Johnson, and welcome to President Ilves as well, and we'll take a short coffee break. Thank you very much.
4: We have a distinguished panel today with a broad range of experience, and also importantly, a geographical range of experience of disinformation and how to respond. Uh, If I could begin with him, Ambassador Daniel Freed, he's a distinguished fellow here at the Atlantic Council, Ambassador Tajan Ildem, the the Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy at NATO, Uh, Mr. Nils Svarts, he's Director General of the uh, Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, which I understand is something of the equivalent for Department of Homeland Security here in the US, Uh, and Jakob Dorr, I should say Jakob, Right. Uh, Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Czech Republic. Uh, a couple of reminders for the audience, uh, this, this will be audience participation and, y- and you can do that old school by writing down your questions. You can also tweet those questions via the has- hashtag StratComDC uh, and please do both because I want to make this as much of an interactive experience as possible. I have my questions but I know you have many smart questions as well. The panel is going to last about 75 minutes. Uh, it's Davos style, so we're not going to begin with opening statements. We're just going to dive right into the discussion. I wonder, uh, Hometown Privileges, if I could begin with uh, the Atlantic Council's Ambassador Freed, for, for his first thoughts uh, on the response to disinformation. You're aware, and we've learned more just in the last few days, about mm-hmm. the role of social media in this, Facebook, et cetera. I wonder if you could begin there in terms of perhaps balancing, there's a government response, right, but there's a private sector response that appears to be necessary, and that's been part of our lesson in these last few days. Perhaps you can start there about how this is a combined responsibility, in effect.
5: Well, I think the the two keynote speakers, the two senators, framed up the issue pretty well. The first, Senator Johnson, talked about cooperation with Europe. So that's a a basic principle. Mm -hmm. If we're gonna solve the problem of Russian propaganda Mm -hmm. in the 21st century, the United States and Europe need to have a common front. Doesn't mean identical solutions, but consistent solutions. Similar to what we did on the sanctions after Russia's aggression against Ukraine. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Second, uh, Senator Whitehurst talked about transparency as a guiding principle. Now, easier said than done. There are areas of government response and areas of, let's say, social response um, outside of government. The problem is how to counter modern 21st century propaganda, especially in its Russian form, in ways consistent with our democratic values. Mm. So you don't want to arm government bureaucrats with the power to stamp things true or false but you don't want to start debating with ourselves to the point of paralysis. Um, Social media has to take on more responsibility. But when people start talking about regulating social media like a utility, I think we have to take all such proposals and hold them up against a standard. How would we feel if this proposal were implemented by an authoritarian government? Because you can be sure that authoritarians will take and abuse whatever solutions we come up with, which is not an argument against action, but an argument for thinking through the problem now. Now, I I think one of the most effective tools can be social mobilization to anathematize and stigmatize Russian trolls and Russian-supported bots, bot factories, troll farms. And on on one level, Social stigmatization and anathemization means that it becomes discredited. The fact that it is a Russian source makes it suspect. And fair enough, given the Russian standards of propaganda. But we want to be careful as we go forward to do things that we can live with uh, in the future. And one final point. American politics is consumed with this issue. We are likely to have a moment of political possibility to address Russian interference in our election system and in our democracy. A moment of political momentum behind legislative solutions. That window will fade. We need to think now, the we in this case being um, civil society, think tanks, and we need to do so in cooperation with Europe. So when that moment comes, we're ready with smart, and durable solutions consistent with our democracy and not simply running off in excited ways that we later regret.
4: A lot of questions I want to ask you. I'm just going to ask one, though, because it's the last point you raised. Can you have that moment when the president himself resists even the assessment that, that Russia orchestrated interference in the election? Can, well, can Congress, Senate, House, etc., do it without his, if not support, his enthusiasm
5: Two answers, one, uh, Congress already showed itself willing and able to, so run in this case, to slap on mandatory sanctions, to put the administration sanctions uh, through executive orders and write them into law to prevent this White House from uh, what many suspected would be unilaterally rescinding sanctions, so Congress has done it. Um, secondly, How can I put this delicately? Much will depend on the content of what we learn of the nature of Russian interference and its relationship, if any, with the Trump campaign. There will be, look, I'm old enough to remember Watergate. There will be a moment in the aftermath of whatever's coming when there will be a political necessity in this country, I suspect, to do something. A necessity to do something doesn't mean that something we do is going to be wise. Right? I lived through the post 9-11 imperative to do something. Mm. And not all of that was wise. Okay? We need to think through it now so that we are ready. Think through it as a nation, and I'm speaking as an American, but as a member of the wider transatlantic community, the free world, we're far better off if we do it with Europe and hint Americans may be coming to this problem now, but Estonians, Swedes, Finns, Poles, uh, the French uh, are, are well aware of it, and, you know, President Ilves and other Estonians need no advice from us on um, the nature of the Russian threat. So work it with Europe. Work it hard now.
4: We, we, I went with a team from CNN to, to Estonia earlier this year to talk about the 2007 2007- Uh, attack uh, for a larger program we were doing about Russian interference, and it was big. And their memories are are very sharp to that moment, and it hasn't stopped, uh, certainly. We have the benefit of having Europeans on the panel here. You heard Ambassador Fried start with uh, this idea that the U.S. and the E.U. must act uh, or NATO, uh, but European partners must act in tandem, there must be a common effort. Uh, I wonder if you believe that that's happening right now. And, and perhaps I could start with you, Yaka, but also here, Nils, your thoughts.
6: Thank you, Jim. And thank you, of course, uh, for organizing this platform, this conference, I think, great initiative of the Atlantic Council to have the discussion here in Washington after various other meetings where the transatlantic dimension of the problem uh, were mentioned, you know, one of the first one, actually if you can call it a coherent kind of summit on Stratcom was organized actually by the Czech Prime Minister Sobotka in, in Prague uh, last uh, November and since then of course various other events took place uh, sharing information, sharing uh, expertise is uh, crucial here but the acknowledgement here in the United States that uh, we feel stronger together when uh, facing and fighting the same threat is something what makes Europeans definitely not uh, feel lonely anymore. And uh, the various uh, official uh, documents are already part of, of, uh, of this feeling. NATO-EU uh, memorandum from last week, uh, last year, is something what should be mentioned here, uh, the uh, cooperation between these two institutions. And the European Global Strategy officially stating uh, the STRATCOM issues as one of the major priorities for the near future is another document, official document, where of course the global uh, global dimension is mentioned. When it comes to the national answers or the national message I can bring uh, uh, from Prague uh, with love, uh, that is definitely uh, something what I would call a, an old tradition or a traditional uh, perspective on things, uh, uh, full of uh, Václav Havel's legacy in, in this issue and full of the traditional instruments, Radio Free Europe headquarters. Is located in Prague after it was moved from from Munich, and of course the old type of fighting propaganda uh, and uh, uh, the emphasis on the freedom of speech is something what is part of this story. Of course, now uh, we are doing uh, many more activities, you know, the Praxiv Society Center addressing uh, the uh, issues uh, from the post-Soviet uh, world are, are part of the story, which how to resemble uh, the, uh, our, our solidarity or our help. But now moving other direction, not only from the traditional radio broadcasting, but moving, of course, to a more complex uh, situation of disinformation. Being part of the hybrid warfare, uh, so the the pictures here is something what uh, brought us to practical measurements and practical steps uh, on uh, uh, the national level uh, for the public administration. For us, it was the national security audit uh, the Czech government uh, organized in 2016. It was demanded by Prime Minister. Uh, part of the story was probably the fact that his emails were read by a uh, foreign power and uh, of course uh, that kind of feeling of uh, immediate threat not necessarily connected to the elections uh, but that is also part of our story. Uh, the October elections are only uh, are only coming in two or three weeks actually and we already have some signs of course of, of, uh, of uh, activities uh, in this field. But anyway, the email story of the Prime Minister and the personal conviction that something has to be done uh, led to a major exercise in the Czech Republic. Hundreds of experts from the national uh, public administration level being backed by uh, external experts. Uh, They created a strategy. Government passed that strategy, uh, that audit uh, in uh, December 2016 and uh, basically uh, it is a document full of uh, concrete recommendations, I would say tasks for each uh, every unit in public administration, Uh, this kind of action plan which is a classified document actually uh, is uh, to be implemented now. It also gives a certain kind of hope and guarantee that the continuous effort on the level of uh, on the national level will be uh, will be there even after elections and no matter what, what will be happening with the political prioritization and thus uh, various experts like ministry of agriculture also have a certain say on it you know when it comes to various examples or displays of the threat minister of education when it comes to education uh, plans and activities uh, well the various involvements of, of ministries bureaucrats and experts and regular meetings are now taking place And I think it's a great uh, inspiration for many other, uh, actually, states uh, to have that exercise to see what are all the levels uh, attacked or affected uh, in in this endeavor. Of course, it's an ongoing struggle. And I will tell you definitely more after 20th of October when the elections will be over.
4: Mm -hmm. Uh, Nils, I know your country has an enormous experience here. Uh, do, Do you find that you're learning valuable lessons for how to successfully push back?
7: The, the the simple answer is yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but if I a small background, mm-hmm. my agency is is created two thousand nine. It was created from from the agency of of uh, rescue and the agency of crisis management, but also from uh, the agency f- uh, from psychological defense. So we have a quite a tradition going back to the Cold War and the fifties. Uh, so it's kind of that tradition that we're picking up now. Uh, of course, the environment, the media environment has completely changed, uh, 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 but, but uh, uh, still, uh, we feel that we can, we can bear with that tradition. For uh, uh, The senators, as you addressed, had these two words that I think is very, very good together. You have to do it together, and it's transparency. But I would like to add uh, awareness. Actually, to notice it's going on and it's going on now, and uh, and and knowledge about this. So you have to have uh, a broader uh, part of the society to actually yeah. say, okay, this is what is going on. Uh, uh, one part that we are, are working with right now is is to work together with the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you involve media in this? Because you know western democracy media is the kind of guarantee uh, for mm-hmm. for the false news uh, for, for actually going after the truth and, and uh, with this going on you have to have a media up and and the media landscape is uh, changing and changing very rapidly so, so i think that is one part uh, due to the knowledge we we have now uh, trained our civil servants about almost 6000 of them having a half day sitting down with them and saying this is what is going on. You have to to acknowledge that this exists and you have to to see it when it comes. We also do do, uh, try to create a handbook asking the academics telling, what is actually this? Can you, can you describe this on an on a, on a academic level? Mm-hmm. So you actually could, could read. An important thing, I, I think both senators addressed too, is what is the goal for the Russian when they're doing it? Uh, and and, they, and they, it's not to, to implement their, their philosophy on us, it's to divide us. To make us uncertain, to make us weak. Mm. Uh, I think that's that's one of, of yeah. and and you have to bear that in mind when when you see the action. Uh, and they, they they support the right wings. They support the extreme lefts. They support uh, islamistic terrorists if if that suits their goals. So so you have to to acknowledge that. Mm.
4: it's interesting. You mentioned division, and and that's been in some of the details of what we learned about Facebook and, and the purchase of ads. Uh, Things like Black Lives Matter uh, issue, gun rights, et cetera, issues that apparently Russian spies or whatever you want to call them knew would be divisive political issues, and then targeted at particular districts where those might sway the vote or or, or lead to voter su- suppression. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I wonder, NATO, of course, formed to counter military threats from. Uh, from the east do you find that that misinformation as part of hybrid warfare has become a high priority for nato in, in discussions in strategy and in actual hard steps to respond
0: well certainly uh, at nato uh, disinformation uh, has become uh, a very important uh, topic uh, of focus uh, and uh, we uh, consider it to be part of Uh, an array of uh, challenges uh, and it is certainly hybrid uh, threats. We have uh, heard uh, Ambassador Wershbaugh during the brief uh, video uh, and uh, he wisely told us that uh, it is to create confusion in our societies, divide uh, our uh, publics uh, to uh, decrease support for our policies operations and missions. And uh, it is uh, not only a challenge for uh, NATO uh, allies but also for partners, for European Union. It's a transatlantic uh, challenge. And uh, how to cope with it? Usually uh, the easy uh, solution is to focus on debunking this this disinformation. This is something that NATO does. Uh, We have, uh, for instance, an online portal called uh, Setting the Record Straight on our website, but I don't think that we can suffice by uh, only focusing on debunking. We should uh, have a robust uh, communication activity, reaching out to different audiences with our good story. Uh, We cannot counter propaganda or disinformation with propaganda, but uh, uh, the best way is to generate democratic debate. After all, uh, our values are being targeted and we need to uh, strengthen the resilience of our societies. Some allied countries, uh, due to historical uh, reasons, are more resilient. Uh, Some uh, don't have this resilience. Uh, Some partners, for instance, uh, Finland uh, is quite resilient. And uh, the Washington Treaty, uh, also talks about, uh, it is Article 3, resilience. It's uh, as, e- uh, as important as Article 5, which we all know. And we have to uh, strengthen uh, the resilience. In doing so, uh, uh, we have to join forces. And uh, I have to uh, uh, recognize the good work uh, done uh, at international organizations level. Uh, among government agencies but also civic society. I mean the mere fact that we are here today uh, convened at this important meeting uh, by Atlantic Council shows how important uh, role think tanks, NGOs are are playing. Uh, One uh, clear example uh, is uh, digital uh, forensic lab's uh, uh, products uh, which Uh, NATO uh, pays uh, much attention and we want to see more of uh, uh, a network uh, of stakeholders from all uh, these uh, institutions. Few words on NATO-EU cooperation that uh, Deputy Minister referred to uh, and I think it is uh, extremely important that we uh, progress in our cooperation. Uh, Last year, uh, uh, two institutions signed a joint declaration and then uh, developed uh, 42 common proposals and one uh, area is to cooperate against hybrid threats and uh, one uh, specific area is to strengthen our capacities in uh, monitoring the uh, media landscape uh, to promote cooperation with uh, one of our centers of excellence uh, which is in Riga Stratcom uh, uh, center of excellence uh, with uh, European Union's Union's uh, task force uh, uh, StratCom East and also uh, when we look at the efforts on our side at NATO uh, we are in the process of developing an information environment assessment capability uh, to better understand uh, how information space is uh, developing so that it can inform our uh, uh, communication efforts to calibrate them uh, and uh, also uh, the new uh, campaign-based approach that we uh, have recently adopted to have uh, proper planning, setting objectives, to have uh, insights uh, of uh, different audiences to target uh, and to uh, incorporate more planning and uh, assessment evaluation uh, in our work so that uh, we are better informed uh, about how we are uh, progressing uh, in uh, communication of our message. Uh, We have uh, a solid uh, and strong narrative as NATO Alliance but what we need to do is to have tailored uh, communication uh, to different uh, audiences and first and foremost young generation uh, to, to be reached out uh, with uh, the tools that they are uh, quite uh, uh, strong in uh, using, uh, social media platforms, using more infographics, uh, and this is what we are trying uh, at NATO. We have to uh, have uh, our uh, story dominating information space, because if there is a vacuum, uh, others will be exploiting it. To the detriment of our interests.
4: A couple of you have mentioned the role of the media in this, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot, uh, being a member of the media. But feel free to fire away. And maybe I'll start with you, Ambassador uh, Fried, because you're you're based here in the U.S. But but do you what do you think, just personally, that the media needs to do differently to contribute to pushing back against disinformation?
5: I think. Identify, well, two strands of action I can think of. One is reporting on Russian efforts, and more of, more of that is being done now. I wish it had been done the past couple of years, but better late than never. Exposing it. The other is, um, exposing the disinformation itself. That is making sure you are aware of Russian troll and bought activities, what stories they're pushing, and why. And you have people doing a lot of the legwork, Uh, the uh, the DFR lab of of the Atlantic Council is one source and there are others. And I think that, that reputable media organizations need to point out what the Russians are doing Just as in the 80s, American media started pointing out Soviet propaganda campaigns and helping educate the American public as to what was going on. And I think by the end of the 1980s, there was a a sophisticated media culture of exposing that sort of stuff, which is, we've lost that in a generation. We need to get it back.
4: You mentioned earlier, Ambassador Fried, this difficult balancing act of regulating without interfering right you know this whole security <coughs> versus liberty kind of uh, and an example of that it struck me that during the french presidential election again where you had stolen emails and strategically timed to be released right before the election the way french law is there there's no there's a news blackout in those last 24 or 48 hours which made a difference with the impact of those those emails of Macron. The U.S. is just a different animal, right? And, and, and I don't know how that would work here, but, but I wonder you or the others, are there laws, regulations that you have in your country or that Ambassador Fried you think we should have here that could get that balance right, to push back against this?
5: First Amendment tends to be, if not absolute, pretty close to it in the United States. Media blackout laws in the United States they're just not going to happen with respect to elections. But I think it would an editorial culture of identifying stories that can be traced back to Moscow would be useful. And I would not want to put government in charge of that, or I would not want, try. To, I would not want to try to legislate that. But I think that would be a useful a useful initiative. And I think journalists could show ought to build in a sensitivity to that. But that's a, that's a suggestion from somebody in a think tank, not a suggestion from somebody in government.
4: Uh Others, for, for your own experience, uh, please, uh, I, maybe we'll just go left to right. <laughs> because,
7: uh, because I think the, the, the daring thing is now that media is changing so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what are the circ- – uh, under the circumstances can they actually work? From where should they get the money to work, uh, to do ha- – ha- have uh, the money to do this deep uh, research that you have have to do. So what you can from 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 an agency level can do is actually helping and in and the think like tank helping uh, to get the knowledge to to make that easy. But to speak for 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 for, for the free world saying uh, because uh, media is is one cornerstone on, on where we we build our democracy. So you 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 must have a free and the problem is how to have a free media that actually could work work with it. Mm-hmm. I see that as, a, as a bun, one of the big issues for the moment. Mm-hmm. Fair, Ambassador Uldum?
4: Uh
0: Well, I think uh, when it comes to uh, freedom of media there are a number of people who would advocate that it should be uh, absolute uh, freedom without restrictions and it, uh, it is a discussion uh, at a national level. What I would like to emphasize is that we need to uh, share experiences and best practices and to elevate our awareness. We are talking about media literacy and there was one, uh, one uh, important example, Lisa case uh, last uh, February in Lithuania when uh, has Forward uh, presence deployments were taking place. This story, uh, fake news uh, uh, went out and it was through the resilience uh, uh, that I was alluding to earlier that it was possible to expose it as a fake news and within hours uh, it uh, disappeared from the uh, news uh, 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 reports and it was thanks uh, to the vigilance and uh, responsible uh, uh, journalism uh, uh, performed during that time and i think these uh, examples could be shared and awareness could be elev- elevated so it is more of a, bringing a sense of responsibility rather than Having uh, uh, legislative restrictions or limitations,
4: Mr. Durba. When, when the word, or rather the phrase, "responsible journalism" comes up, it it, it's, it 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 has it's like beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? That you you we've heard you might have heard some of this directed at CNN, right? Uh, w- w- when certain parties find coverage inconvenient or critical, they can charge it with irresponsible journalism or maybe even fake news. <laughs> so it's it's uh, again it it can be. It can be uh, exploited by parties within the country as opposed to just uh, folks outside, but it, but I hear you. I do. Uh, Minister Durr. Well, Jim,
6: you just said it. I I was about to go that direction as as well, and I can not agree more with uh, all colleagues on on this issue. It's uh, the awareness which is framing the the, the whole idea uh, of the responsible uh, journalism uh, about it, I would say. It's the framework uh, which is uh, connected to political education in the way uh, Germany, for example, created it after 1945, having a special agency and paying Mm -hmm. specific attention to civic uh, engagement and civic uh, education uh, in the way uh, many countries don't have it now or that the literacy is, is not going actually, is not increasing recently uh, on, uh, in, in these issues and media literacy is of, of course part of it. So it's not about changing the legislative framework or changing the constitutions on this and going the censorship direction of course, but it's more about soft measures and soft steps uh, which I believe might work uh, in a much more efficient way. When it comes to legislation, the only uh, element uh, which is really crossing my mind is the uh, insurance that transp- Transparent media ownership is, is there in the national framework. So transparency also when it comes to the media ownership uh, that is uh, probably uh, one uh, one measurement, but uh, one measure uh, what uh, what uh, we can uh, we can deal with. Uh, then uh, there is also the segment of uh, social media. So it's also about increasing responsibility and responsiveness not only the state institutions uh, and the state players, but also of the social media here and here we think that uh, they might do their part of the job by ensuring that users are uh, real individuals who are uh, of course uh, using the social media for the purpose of communication so the real individuals and the guarantees there of course the sharing information among the media experts and uh, also the IT experts in the media uh, when uh, uh, countering this information is part of it and then, uh, I'm the old school guy when it comes to the media, uh, uh, responsibilities, uh, and that is, of course, old good support uh, for the investigative journalism, which is an expression which is uh, in the media landscape almost lost uh, uh, because of the way how we finance uh, the more kind of strategic and more uh, more complicated segments of the media work. So, uh, investigative journalism of the old traditional sort uh, is something what uh, you know uh, should should be back on track.
4: I will say just in that because I know Ambassador Fried, you want to pipe in that, that as a journalist. This period of time, which has been very challenging, has been, again, as a journalist, encouraging because um, you've seen some great investigative journalism in the U.S. in the last several months, which is a, which is a product of um, investment in a financial sense. You know, you you have newspapers that are that are thriving, and you know, like maybe even bought by Amazon <laughs> billionaires, you know, and elsewhere. But also um, a sense of mission, you know. Re- Rejuvenated sense of mission, but Ambassador Freed, I know you wanted to.
5: I think if you if you put the challenge in terms of quote responsible journalism, that's a trap that leads to an unproductive debate, because responsible journalism in the hand uh, that phrase in the hands of an authoritarian government right. means censorship, right. and it means threatening journalists. And I understand. I perfectly understand. CNN's or anybody else's sensitivity to that, especially in the current climate in the United States, I'm embarrassed to say. But unpack the problem, and it may be easier. There are issues of transparency mm-hmm. with respect to ownership, with respect to sources, with respect to identification of persons, real or fictitious, on social media. And there may be mm-hmm. steps which don't raise the kind of red flags you've identified. Uh, There is the application of the American Foreign Agents Registration Act, which was created uh, to counter Nazi propaganda, which was, at the time, sophisticated, world-class. Should that be applied to RT and Sputnik? That's not stopping them. That is labeling them. Is that appropriate?
4: It's interesting you bring that up, because that's one of our Twitter questions is about that. What advantage does labeling RT and others foreign agents give the U.S., and are there dangers in doing so?
5: Also, in my experience as the sanctions person at state, uh, I was working with the Europeans on the sanctions program against uh, against the Russians because of their invasion of Ukraine. We ran into an interesting phenomenon, which is that the sum of the same cutouts individuals used by the Kremlin to funnel money for bad Ukraine purposes were also channels, allegedly, uh, channels for Russian money for the St. Petersburg troll farm. The the Russians were using the same bad actors for multiple purposes, which leads to the question, are sanctions relevant to start targeting the money, uh, the money flows for bad, for Either bad and difficult to define, or even illegal purposes. So, sli- I would I would argue that the problem needs to be sliced more finely, so we don't get into theological issues of media control, because that will lead to no action.
4: And, and to be fair, I get M- Ambassador um, Ildem's point about responsible journalism. The, the other interpretations is a, hold yourself media companies to a high standard, right? And and. Uh, uh, you know standards and practices, ethics, th- this kind of thing is, Im- is important. So there's, I, I accept certainly there's a positive meeting as well, meaning rather as well. I, I want to get I mentioned one of the Twitter quench questions. I, I want to get to another here because it goes back to, to where we started. Uh, should it be the responsibility of social media companies to anticipate how their products and architecture can be weaponized? Particularly relevant, I think, because there have been some reasonable questions about whether Facebook sat on information it had? Because uh, clearly it was aware of these ads long before they were revealed a couple of weeks ago. Um, should they have been more forward leaning on this, particularly before the election? Does anybody want to uh, comment on that?
7: I, I'd like to comment on, on, you you have to know what what information do they have, because they, they close themselves in and not telling anybody, and, and you need to study that area. So, so you can have a description, what actually can you do? What do they sit on and what actually is happening. Because now it goes into a black box and you have no idea of it. Right. Uh, so, so again, it's knowledge uh, in, this new, in this new world. How, do, how, how can you actually do propaganda? How can you technically use artificial intelligence to meet uh, uh, these things? Can you use it as the same way as you're doing in the advertising? The advertising, seeing okay, you were on this uh, website and that that website and that, and what you need is a new suit. So and you go buy it. Can you reverse that so you can get information uh, uh, saying okay, this is information coming from from somewhere else. Can I get uh, a, a declaration where someone actually? Uh, uh on, on artificial in intelligence can can uh put it on me so i can get a label then you could perhaps could have a, a discussion with google and, and 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 facebook and say can you put that uh,
4: uh yeah. algorithm in? Mm-hmm. that'd be very hard. I mean, imagine a, a, a story sourced in a troll farm and yeah. in wherever that has a kind of red mark on it. I mean, we, we have the reverse of that. You have yeah. the blue verified checks on Twitter, right, yeah. to, to show that you're yeah. who you say you are. Do the reverse. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because it, it, it fits into the news just from the last 24 hours or so. There's been a significant right shift, again, this question from Twitter, in the German election. Is this a success of Russian communication? Uh, to, to, our, to our European panelists, listen. They're a minority party but they're back in parliament for the first time in 60 some odd years is there evidence that russian misinformation helped push that along
6: well as a neighboring uh country uh, we were of course close uh, floating closely uh their uh, elections and uh, really the lessons which can be learned uh not only after uh the french elections and uh, all those previous uh, stories but uh uh, when it comes to the information tactics and disinformation campaigns, uh, well, uh, not, nothing new there and maybe nothing, nothing so ex- extensive or intensive. But when it comes to the way how, you know, the uh, campaign was changing also the behavior of political parties from inside, and when it comes to the content of certain issues, then of course they were side effects or there were other, other stories to be told uh, rather than to focus on emails and hacking uh, this and that. So let's forget about the, the cyber part of the whole story only, but let's see, you know, why, for example, CSU, uh, which is uh, one of the most important parties, in the German political ecosystem decreased uh, their popularity or their, their votes uh, by a significant number and what was actually the strategy of the CSU in the elections and what are the internal players inside that party about when it comes to uh, the Nord Stream, uh, when it comes to uh, Russian uh, uh, politics and uh, straightforwardness when it comes to uh, really uh, their active communication with, with Moscow. So it's one of the parties you usually don't have on on the spot in spite of the fact that it's part of the uh, government coalition there. So one small little remark uh, as a a, more as a political scientist than anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, FDP another interesting story uh, and uh, the whole story about uh, Crimea and uh, sanctions and the way how they should be abandoned. It was a very weird story to be told a couple weeks before the the elections but uh, yes it was something what was present in uh, the political landscape of of Germany. And I don't want to go into the financing and uh, support for the uh, AFD uh, and uh, the huge increases, especially in the Eastern Germany, uh, former Eastern Germany, uh, the former Bundesländer from there, and uh, the different strategies of voting of Eastern German voters and Western German voters. And I'm not going to go into the program strategies of the Linke, the, the leftist parties. So this is just covering basically a significant part of the landscape and not mentioning SPD and the anti American and anti transcendent uh, tone uh, and uh, very specific, uh, uh, again, attitude of the uh, ex chairman of those parties.
4: Are you saying that there's evidence of financial support for AFD in Germany to candidates, et cetera, in the East? Is that what you're saying?
6: The political support for the extreme right and the yeah. extreme left. I mean, from Russia. I mean, coming from Russia, direct. Yeah, I'm speaking about the support for those particle mm-hmm. two segments of the political spectrum, in uh, not only in Germany, I think this is an overall strategy we can see in all countries. Understood, Nils. You. Will. Uh,
4: that,
7: that's, what, that's what we believe, but, uh-huh. but uh, I wouldn't comment on, on that bit. But on the other hand, we ha- have an election coming up in two thousand and eighteen. And we have studied the, the election in France. We have studied the election, and we study still study the election in, in Germany. And of course, we follow the the, the election here in, in in the United States. And we're taking measures according to that, uh, and and uh, educate uh, the the civil servants on the regional on local level who is uh, handling the the elections. Mm-hmm. So they should have a fair chance to see what's what's going on, and. Uh, we don't have electronic votes in <laughs> in Sweden. We mm. will stay with the analog, old school, <laughs> old school, and we will stay for that for for this election. And I
4: think we will stay for that next election too. Interesting, isn't yeah. it? Interesting how that that was until a couple of years ago. That was the wave of the president in future, mm. and now now it seems like and here mm. in the states too. You hear about yeah. going back to
7: it's going back back to trust because. Mm. The, you you can you can count them. You can see I voted with this one. Right. and You can count them. When it goes to into the digital world, so you have a certain problem with with, with trust. Yeah. Uh, and and if you have a problem with the trust from the beginning, that is a very easy part uh, attack and say that is fake. That somebody is doing something with this, mm-hmm. and, and then you have a. a, a real problem. Hmm?
4: We have about 15 minutes to go, so I, I would encourage you to uh, to submit questions. And, and can we do them from the, from the audience as well, or, or just just electronically? We can do them from the audience? We can. Okay. Uh, if I can, to the audience, a uh, gentleman here in, the, in the, the third row.
8: My name is Walter Giras again. I grew up back in Poland, and I observe, you know, over here as well as United States and all over the world. During my time youth, Polish people only by newspaper for one reason only, to read a sports section. This was the biggest Russian propaganda and nobody listened. They give it up on any news. So they give them a you know, turn, score soccer, especially or football. 2-2 was 2-2. They never believed what the media says. Now, my question to you is very simple. Is this irresponsible media a danger to democracy? Because we're going back to the last election. My father, when he grew up on the farm, he says, well, the two people are a fight. The third one also win, mm. almost win. And we have a Russia influence of it. Who's this fall is when we have a two-party members fight back and forth, influence on Russia, from Democrats as well as Republicans, and the corporate influence on the media. So is the media is a irresponsible media danger to democracy? Thoughts to the panel?
5: I have some personal experience with Polish media, and I remember that Poles were very good at discriminating between real newspapers, starting with Gazeta Wyborcza in 1989, the first free newspaper, and the rest of the newspapers. And the lesson I learned is that far more powerful than state guidance or censorship is an educated and alert public. Which means that there are roles for groups like the Atlantic Council and other groups in Washington and groups all through Europe as the sort of antibodies which resist the outside the outside infection of bad propaganda. It's a lurid a lurid metaphor, sorry about that. But it is, I suppose. Um, sadly apt. That's the answer. I wouldn't go down the road of going after irresponsible or responsible media, because that ultimately is playing the Russian's game. Go along the lines of empowering society to stigmatize and anathematize Russian-sourced propaganda, which is going to support the far right and the far left, because their desire is simply to discredit democracy in general. That's what we have to do. And then figure out what role there is for government. Voluntary codes of conduct which have a precedent. The EU's done that with uh, social media platforms with respect to hate hate speech. Not done in the United States. But it's an interesting precedent and worth exploring. But, But go trust ultimately in free societies to get themselves on their feet after a slow period of confusion. and and American society may be emerging from a period of confusion, and as I said earlier, we may find ourselves with a window to do stuff, and I just wanna make sure that the stuff we end up doing is wise.
4: One challenge is that the the, the perception of bias is not focused purely on outside actors, right? Because, and this is one of the ironies of social media, is that rather than giving people a greater variety of views, people retreat into their own corners more and more. And if you watch the Facebook feed of of someone who's right-leading versus the Facebook feed of someone who's left-leading here in the US, this great free society with a a 1,000 media outlets, you have two different versions of reality. And you also then have public figures who question whether there is even a a common set of facts, right, statistics on you name it on cbo scores for healthcare reform to, to climate change that's the challenge is that the questions often come internally as opposed to i mean seeded from the outside i i love the the metaphor that if two people are fighting the third one's winning because that's in effect what you what you see was the target of russian interference was just get the get the two dogs in the ring to fight each other you see the point i'm making is how do you it's not purely an outside actor that you can kind of close off and say hey that russian stuff is bs because Internally, you have questions uh, and lack of trust.
0: A few words uh, about responsible journalism, Mm -hmm. because I was the one uh, who raised it. And I don't want uh, the audience to leave with a wrong uh, idea. uh, uh, That uh, I use it in the positive sense Mm -hmm. for uh, journalists to check, double check the source uh, and uh, trace uh, whether there is uh, any potential for fake news. Mm Uh, In terms of uh, uh, dealing with irresponsible uh, journalism in that sense, uh, as uh, uh, the question was uh, about, uh, I also agree that uh, in a democratic society we should encourage free debate and uh, also to communicate uh, the truth. When truth is there i'm sure that this irresponsible yeah. uh, journalism uh, will be isolated in our minds in, in the society
4: and sometimes the truth is right in front of you i mean if you look at for instance the coverage of uh, hurricanes it's hard to argue when a you know when your when your house gets flooded I, I will say just in terms of standards i've been a journalist for 25 years uh, and i've never been at an organization or at a time where there is greater attention to sourcing and standards, multiple sourcing, the, the levels of review that we go through on our stories—I've never seen it before. It is—we're, you know, our, our level of consciousness is pretty high there. Doesn't mean you always get it right, but but we try. We try.
0: Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events podcast. For more information, please visit our website at atlanticcouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.